Hello and welcome to the first episode of BZ Listening for 2022. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, and uh, what am I? Oh yeah, I'm an independent journalist based in Cleveland, Ohio. And if this intro gets a little messy, I have tried to do a clean one and recorded a million times and I'm just done, people. So anyway, uh, my guest today, the first one for the new year, is Nico Walker. He's the author of the novel Cherry. The book is a fictionalized account of an unnamed character who follows a path very similar to Walker's own life story. He joins the army at 19, serves in Iraq as a medic, spirals into heroin addiction as he deals with crippling PTSD, and finally sets off on a spree of bank robberies. It's a page-turner. The book uh, largely takes place in Iraq and Cleveland Heights, which is the very city where I checked out my copy. There is also a film adaptation out on Apple TV, which stars Tom Holland and directed by the, the Russo brothers. It's a, a fine film, but nothing really compares to reading Nico in his own voice. So um, this interview actually came about because Nico reached out to me. Uh, it was a few weeks ago following the release of my investigation into the wrongful prosecution of Tony Viola by Senior Assistant State Ohio Attorney General Dan Casares. I hate saying that whole title. Um, I also hate that he has that title. <clears throat> um, Walker was actually a uh, uh, Viola's cellmate about a, a decade ago, and the two have kept in close touch. and And he's very much in Viola's uh, in Viola's corner. So Nico reached out. He wanted to thank me for the work and uh, offer any assistance he could to get the story out to a, a wider audience. Sadly, we are still struggling in that regard, despite a, a strong initial surge of traffic and attention and a lot of promising feedback from journalists I was sharing the story with. Uh, it's mostly been crickets. A little, little disturbing. Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, on today's show, uh, Walker and I discuss Iraq, the the spirals and, 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 and dark sides of addiction, the futility of the drug war, and also we spend quite a bit of time talking about the frustrating tragedy of Viola's case. Now, if you're, you're new to the show, you have no idea who Viola or I are, uh, go on down to the show description, and, and there's some links in there that, that should clear up any confusion. So uh, regarding the show real quick, um, this Friday I will be doing a live stream year in preview and uh, Q&A on YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter spaces. I'll be previewing some of the stories I'm looking into and share some ideas on other projects I'm hoping to produce. Uh, as we go into this new year, I just need to send a, a very sincere and, and awkwardly long hug to all of my Patreon and Substack subscribers the, the struggle with imposter syndrome uh, these last 18 months of this career shift has been quite real, but manageable with, with all, of, all of your uh, support and, of course, the, the deep appreciation I have received from the sources and subjects who've made my reporting possible. So thank you. And uh, you know what? Before we kick off the episode, I'm going to just give you a big, awkward hug. Here it comes. Oh! 
Alright, so <laughs> thank you so much for listening and now here is my interview with Nico Walker. Moved around a lot when I was a kid, uh, you know, just because of, uh, I don't know, work stuff to do with my dad, you know, uh, leaving one place, going to another. Um, so, but I lived in Las Vegas mostly. I was born in Decatur, Georgia, but uh, you know, left uh, left Georgia when I was uh, when I was two, I believe. Moved to Las Vegas. I uh, was in Las Vegas for a little while, then I uh, had to move back to Atlanta for a year. So I was in Atlanta, well, Decatur's in the Atlanta area, but I uh, lived in uh, was it Morrow up in uh, Clayton County. Uh, for a little while, then moved to uh, North Atlanta uh, for the rest of that school year, then ended up uh, back in Las Vegas uh, in Henderson this time, living in Henderson, Nevada, which is outside Las Vegas, and I uh, was there until I was 10, uh, and then when I was 10, uh, my dad, he got a job uh, with uh, with uh, Nova Machine Products in NSA, which was out in uh, Middleburg Heights. And, uh, you know, sort of settled in into Ohio after then we lived in, uh, lived in uh, Pepper Pike, Fair Mountain Lander there. Uh, when I was, uh, went, to, went to Orange for a little while. Then uh, uh, when I was in, uh, was eighth grade or something I moved to uh Hawken, I guess and uh it's out in uh out in Gates Mills but yeah I was living uh in Pepper Pike until uh until uh I moved to Cleveland I guess when I was uh what 18 18 years old moved to Little Italy lived on Murray Hill yeah and then uh went into the service from there and uh, kicked around Texas and Iraq and went to basic in Missouri. But yeah, and then I came back and I lived in uh, Cleveland Heights, University Heights after, uh, after I got out of the military. So rolling back a bit, um, one thing I, I find interesting with anybody, but especially someone who then later on went to go to Iraq is uh, the 9-11 story. You know, because it's 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 very different for everybody, and I always find it's very fascinating. It wasn't until years after that I started thinking about what was that like for kids in school, because I was about twenty, you know, twenty four uh, or twenty three at the time, and I was just alone in a house, and I just processed it all on my own, and then I didn't have the rest of the days were mine to just be like, what's going on? That was really where my political consciousness about the world came up. Um, I'm just curious how, you know, how that landed on, on you and, and was, was there a lot of po politics in your family? Cause I think I read, you said you joining up with Iraq was a bit of, sh of a shock to them. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how much of a shock it was necessarily. I mean, I think probably could have foreseen it. I mean, I never really, um, I don't know. I never really set the world on fire in school, you know, necessarily. I mean, I had a lot of opportunities to, but I just, you know, I never did. Um, 
I don't know. It wasn't uh, necessarily that I, you know, looked down on it or nothing like that. It was more just that it, it just wasn't for me. It never really clicked. Um, it wasn't the type of place that I, that I, you know, that I do well at, I suppose. Um, you know, so I was already, uh, you know, I'd been out of school for a little while uh, when I enlisted. And then you know, my mother, um, her stepdad, I guess, uh, her father passed away when she was very young. Uh, he was, uh, she was born in, uh, I guess, you know, she was either, she was born in France or sort of, it was, you know, it was Germany or wherever, you know, it was kind of occupied at the time. It was back when, uh, what, Saarland was uh, German, uh, is kind of a German speaking place, but it was, it was controlled by the French government in a way they even had their own passport, I guess, neither France nor Germany. It's hard to sort out, but anyway, uh, her father was an Italian guy, but he passed away when she was very young and her mother ended up marrying, uh, marrying uh, a guy in the U.S. Army. That's how uh, my mom eventually came back to the United States or with him to the United States. She'd never been in the United States before, but so, uh, you know, she was a, she was an army brat, I guess, through her stepfather. And, um, you know, when I, uh, when I was a kid, I guess, uh, my stepdad, he's still, uh, or my mom's stepdad rather, uh, he's still, you know, he'd retired from the army after 20 years or something, but he was, he was still close to the, to the base up there in Georgia. It was what Fort Gillum was what it was called, you know, and, uh, the army was kind of it was it was still there you know i mean they would go shopping at the px and stuff like that for the duty-free groceries and and uh whatever else you know what have you um and i spent a lot of time uh with them there you know lived with them there for a little while went to school from their house you know up there and uh and so uh yeah i mean uh, I suppose that's kind of why I ended up in that branch of service was it was the one that I sort of had the most familiarity with just from, you know, being around, uh, you know, post when I was a kid going to whatever, like the family day at the base and stuff like that, you know, and, um, you know, for better, or for worse, uh, you know, it was kind of what I, something that I, you know, if I didn't identify with it, it wasn't foreign to me necessarily. And, uh, you know, seemed like a sensible enough thing to do. Uh, and so, you know, when I enlisted in the army, I suppose wasn't necessarily the biggest surprise in the world. I, I think they probably had a little anxiety about, uh, you know, whether or not I would deploy and, you know, whether or not I would go to Iraq and what I would be doing in Iraq, that sort of thing, you know, just sort of, I suppose, just worrying about my life limit eyesight, you know, that gave them some anxiety. Um, probably wasn't, you know, something that they remember as the most uh, relaxing time in their life, you know, worrying about their kid doing that, that kind of stuff. But uh, surprised, I don't, I don't know if they were surprised or not. I don't know. Hard to say. Probably not, though.
Um, and in one of the uh, pieces I was reading, you mentioned that, you know, um, I thought it was interesting your your framing of uh, how you were quoted saying that you were going to be sort of complicit in the war. Um, mm-hmm. You might as well go over there and, and fight it. And I hadn't really seen that um, rationale articulated before, and I really respected it on a certain level. It wasn't uh, it was detached from politics, though, you know, it was sort of saying whatever it is, I'll be a part of it. Um, but I, that's what I guess I was wondering, too, is yeah. did you go into Iraq thinking like, no, this is good that we're here or had some of the like, you know, doubts that were that were out there about like the pretext for it happening? Uh, had you taken those in or? Yeah, I guess I suppose, sort of missed your, your, your question, too, about, you know, what, September 11th being in school and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was in high school and. September 11th happened. Um, watched, I think the, the towers came down when I was in uh, in algebra class. You know, uh, I think uh, you know since then a lot's changed. I think, um, well, maybe not for you, but you're a bit older, you know. And uh, I think that we kind of gave uh, the benefit of the doubt, maybe a little bit more to, you know, to the government, uh, you know, the, the president, military, just the United States of America in general, I think back then. Um, and, you know, I, you know, wasn't one of these people that was all for invading Iraq. Uh, I remember it kind of being a, a crazy time because it was, uh, I mean, I think it's kind of the first time and it, and it hasn't really gotten better. I suppose it sort of ebbs and flows. So, so I was out of society for a little while. So I'm not really sure what was going on through the uh, 2010s because I basically missed the whole decade. But where there was this kind of, uh, what do you call it? Cognitive dissonance, I think is what it is. You know, there were people who thought that, uh, who believed and that, uh, you know, Iraq had had something, the Iraqi government and whatever had had something to do with uh, what happened on September 11th, you know, and I, you know, I knew that that, or, you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, I knew that that was not, not the case, you know, and it, and it already kind of made the war sort of, you know, suspect in my mind. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, I definitely wasn't for it, you know, but at the same time, uh, kind of the way I was, I was seeing things and I think I was, you know, I think I was mistaken in this probably in retrospect, but, you know, it seemed like the the thing wasn't ending anytime soon, you know, and uh, I sort of saw there being sort of like, you know, um, maybe not two, but uh, probably more than that. But there were kind of, uh, there were, you could at least break things down into, uh, you know, there were people who were, there were people who were, um, you know, having to hold up that end of the bargain, I suppose. And then there were people that were out of it. And, 
um, as far as, you know, whatever anti-war movement was going on at the time, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, there was nothing there. There was, there was really nothing going on that was going to move, move anything that was going to change anything. The attitude towards what was happening was, uh, sort of detached. I think that people, you know, there were people who were certainly against it, but I don't think they knew what to do to stop it. And, you know, they couldn't stop it, uh, if they wanted to, right. Um, they just didn't have uh, the momentum for that. They didn't have a platform for that. So, you know, you look at it as something in terms of just like, well, what can you do? Well, the, you know, the stop loss thing had sort of gotten a lot of uh, publicity then. And I mean, there were people who, you know, had enlisted, you know, long before the invasion of Iraq had enlisted before, September 11th, even, you know, and who were not being allowed to leave the military. Um, I mean, you know, the stop loss thing, I suppose, when they signed a contract, they knew that they could be on um, whatever the inactive reserve, I guess, for eight years after they signed the contract. But, you know, they probably understood that at the time to mean that, like, you know, barring World War Three, uh, they were going to be out. You know, it would have to be some sort of, you know, major, major thing that would require them to to stay on beyond their terms of active enlistment. And this turned out to not be the case. You know, so it was literally sort of a thing where, you know, if you if you went in, somebody else could get out so that was uh that was definitely uh, a factor sort of in in that decision of mine uh to go in was that by going in at least hypothetically somebody could get out uh who otherwise might not have gotten out uh and then yeah the enlisting to be a healthcare specialist it seemed like a you know, morally neutral sort of thing to do. I mean, it wasn't, I don't believe in retrospect. I think it was sort of an endorsement of the whole thing. And, you know, perhaps it was a bit naive really about just kind of how cynical the policymakers were who were responsible for what was happening. Um, but then again, you know, it's, when I was a kid, you just kind of, or at least, you know, it felt like, you know, most people and, and myself included, you just sort of assumed that, you know, you weren't, uh, that, you know, the U.S. government wasn't, wouldn't just like go murk a bunch of people strictly to make money and see if they can do it, you know? Uh, which sort of ended up being what was actually going on. And so to be a part of that, I guess, I, is still, uh, you know, it's something that I wish were not true about my life, but, you know, there's not much I can do to change it. Um, and, 
you know, but anyway, when I went in, you know, I thought healthcare specialist, you know, that seems like a positive thing to do. And, uh, you know, as I was colorblind, I guess it the, you know, it would keep me out of, you know, the combat arms units and, you know, well, I ended up in one anyway. And uh, that was kind of that. So there I was in an infantry unit as a medic, a line medic in an infantry unit in Iraq within, within nine months or something of enlisting. I was in the, uh, in that line unit and within, you know, 10 months of going to basic training, I was in Iraq or, you know, on my way there about at that time anyway. So that was just sort of how it played out. Hard to say though. I mean, to look back and, you know, really think, what was I thinking at the time? I'm sure there's a lot of things that I've forgotten. Uh, I mean, obviously there's all sorts of cornball things that I was thinking about, you know, just like respectability and, you know, I don't know, economic things like, you know, money, <laughs> you know, paying for a house, you know, having, a, you know, paying for maybe having a family, doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. Um, you know, whatever the details of that were, you know, I kind of forgot, but I didn't really uh, understand going in, you know, not that it was like, you know, some SS shit out of Schindler's List or something, you know, where we're just rounding people up and murdering them or anything like that. I mean, that wasn't what was going on, but, you know, even, you know, the level that it, the level that it was at, it just, uh, you know, it just kind of, it was, uh, you know, he didn't feel good about it. He didn't feel good about being there. He didn't feel good when he came back. Um, and uh, I, you know, whatever, I suppose I probably should have been able to predict that, you know, it's not really a secret, I guess that, well, you know, a lot of people have, you know, maybe insinuated that war is uh, a racket and that it's not a, not a good thing and that it should be avoided if one can help it. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, I was a kid, I was naive and, uh, you know, maybe the gravity of what I was getting into, you know, maybe it was something I didn't really appreciate at the time, I guess. So <clears throat> when you went uh, into the the army, um... I don't, and again, um, so the, the cherry is framed as, as, as a book of fiction. So where the lines blur of what you were writing about seeing versus that you actually did or this and that, but it's, it's very, um, one of the things that stands out about on a style level is like, it doesn't hold your hand on a lot of levels. Acronyms are kind of dropped out there. Sometimes they're explained, sometimes they're not. If they are explained, they're kind of like impassing quickly and you're like, oh, what is that? But I found myself sometimes just rolling with the vernacular and being like, I'll infer it along the way, what that, what those three letters mean. Um, and then I'll very um, like um, so the, 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 the main character is, is at the same time self-deprecating, but also um, there's a lot of judgment going on about the people around them. Um, 
and then there's a lot of uh drug use that happens which kind of moves into where you know your your arc starts to to veer once you get out of iraq um for various reasons but i was curious um as far as like alcohol or you know wherever you're the uh genesis the beginning of your addiction uh has roots if it if it they took hold while you were over there because culturally there was a lot of drugs being done around you or uh if they go back further but also to what extent um do you think that you know is adrenaline an unacknowledged involuntary opiate of war um and how many how many um soldiers are over there and and they're there for the adrenaline and they come back here and become cops and covering police it seems to me that there's a lot of police that look at the job as like oh man if i this is where i go to get that fix when i'm now that i'm not at war uh and wondering too if any of that adrenaline like finding the adrenaline in where you ultimately like if we're teasing out this whole plot point is you know you go from iraq to then you are um in in the the grips of of uh heroin addiction and and oxycontin and then robbing banks and um as i've thought about adrenaline uh being maybe a a carryover in in prior discussions about police that are very aggressive in how they do their job uh whether or not they've been to war or not i was just wondering if that's something that has a lasting effect from the and you have no choice but to to take that drug when you are in the shit. Yeah, um no, I mean I had I had done drugs before. I was in the army, you know, I mean I don't know if I you know had the same reaction to them afterward. I mean, I think uh I certainly appreciated opioids a lot more after the army than you know I did uh before. I mean, I you know, I had done heroin you know, I think it was the first time I did heroin, I was 18. That was before I joined the military. You know, it's not one of these things where, you know, I wouldn't have done drugs had I not been in the military. I mean, no, I'd done drugs before I had been in the military. Um, I don't know, you know, to what extent it aggravated uh, things. I mean, I think part of the problem that I had um, readjusting, you know, coming back was, you know, just sort of uh, was a bit too intense, I guess, if you can imagine, uh, a little bit too keyed up, a little bit melodramatic, I would even say. I think that there's uh kind of uh it's something almost that's like encouraged you know uh or not encouraged but enabled in the in the whole military thing you know is uh and that did that was gonna i was thinking that as you were talking about it and did that surprise you when you went in that you're like oh well maybe i'll go into the military and i i won't do as much if you were thinking that at all or if you were going in thinking like oh i'll go into the military oh. and i will find plenty of people who will i even you didn't didn't oh, see no. I mean, my like you had to do anything to conceal this it was just openly like yeah we're all doing the, the- no, no no i mean it wasn't it wasn't out in the open and certainly like you didn't want to be known as a drug user you know for sure you found your people 
yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you sort of, you, yeah, I guess you smell them out or whatever, you know, okay. fellow travelers or whatnot. Um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of went into the military sort of hoping that one of the things that it would do for for me would uh be to like kind of straighten me out a little bit make me a little more uh you know a little more straight hedge a little more serious you know and you know maybe for that i sort of did embrace it uh you know uh, a bit over enthusiastically while i was in you know and sort of once i'd been in the culture of the military sort of you know got this attitude where you know i would you know, I would do what I was asked to do and, and uh, you know, try to do it, do it well, you know, uh, certainly that was not something I can't sit here and act like I was, you know, the cool guy or anything like that. I, uh, I took it, I took it seriously to, uh, to an extent that I wish I hadn't maybe, you know, kind of bought into it um and i think that when you're as far as what you're saying you know the uh, getting addicted to adrenaline you know um iraq at least by the time that i was there maybe like i'm i don't know maybe i'm fucked up or something you know i didn't get a lot of like adrenaline um unless you know somebody were like actively trying to kill me um like shooting at me or something i didn't get any adrenaline rush um from just like the day-to-day -day stuff i guess you know the first time that you that you leave the fob the forward operating base and you and you go out and you're on the road and you're thinking well you know you know there could be an id out on the road that's gonna blow up this this truck that I'm riding in. Um, yeah, it's a bit tense, you know, the first couple times that you do it, you know, you're a bit on edge maybe. And then maybe you sort of don't notice that you're on edge and you get stuck on edge or 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 what. But it's like anything else, anything that becomes familiar to you, you just sort of adjust to it and it becomes ho hum, you know. So you know, riding around, you know, on the road, you know, regardless of whether or not there were an IED there, you didn't really feel very excited about it. It was just sort of routine. Um, and, you know, this, despite the fact that IEDs were being found all the time, you know, um, IEDs were, were hitting, our, hitting, our, hitting our shit all the time and, and blowing it up, right? Um, and hurting people and killing people um on a fairly regular basis um i don't know in as much it's like you don't notice until you're back that you're on edge like that because i suppose thinking back on what i was just saying a couple seconds ago you know the last question talking about getting into opioids afterwards is it sort of like a way to like de-intensify myself in a way um you know the answer may be that it's just sort of you don't know that you're on edge anymore you don't know that you're alert anymore and um you know that could be it 
Um, as far as, you know, people seeking the adrenaline afterward, though, it's like, you know, the moments that you're going to get that adrenaline are very, it, you know, they're, they're few and far between. You're going to, it's going to happen, you know, even in Iraq at that point, you know, it, it wouldn't, it wasn't like an everyday thing where you're in, you know, in a situation where people are firing their weapons and stuff like that. Most of the time, it's just, you know, you go out for a drive and you come back or you, you go out for a walk and you come back. Um, so there's not going to be that huge rush of adrenaline like when you're in a, like a combat situation. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, you do get a rush of adrenaline with that and it is kind of a singular experience. I mean, it is kind of the only, only time you'll feel that thing is, is when, uh, I don't know when, when it's, it's when it's real dangerous, I suppose. Um, and um, yeah, but I mean, to to be like, you know, if I'm a police officer, when I get out, you know, I'm gonna feel that that thing, that drug. I mean, maybe they, maybe you know they'd be satisfied by it, you know, just like once a once or twice a year. I don't know, it'd be hard. Is, I, you know, I've never been law enforcement, so it's hard for me to say like how how often well, they get I in think, a situation like that, you know? I think um, like uh, when Iraq was going on and as I looked at um, read from afar, not from having your ground level view of, you know, and then you see news of Abu Ghraib break or other stories that, that did trickle out in the news, um, thinking about how soldiers were, you know, dehumanizing people and that there was this military to police pipeline, like mm. a lot of times yeah. what gets you into the police. And then you're seeing the police departments inherit all this militarized gear. They don't get nearly the training that you would do. You would. Yeah. Right. That's funny. So they're they're getting works, both. Uh, yeah. If you're, if you don't came say from that area if you, and so, yeah, if you're, you're came out of Iraq, and you lived on edge and whatever it was, maybe you didn't have a lot of opportunities, but you, maybe you were someone who was itching for those more. Um, and then you're in the police, you continue to be on edge. And it also, there's a mentality of a lot of police that like, yeah, my, their lives always in, 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 in danger. Or at least they can create that prospect whenever they want to a lot of times, it seems. Yeah, so, yeah. A lot of it is sort of what you're talking about, kind of like, creating that and it, it's uh there's sort of a, a what do you say like a like an echo chamber in those situations too it's you know the people they talk to or you know people like them and so you know there's that sort of support from that um and then like i think kind of more what what probably draws uh military people into law enforcement is uh that sort of security of uh well first of all you, you know it's kind of like it's kind of like uh kind of like the military in a way you know yeah there are times where you work really hard but also um it's sort of it's it's sort of it's sort of lazy i mean it's not like you're out there you know putting up sheetrock you know <laughs> Yeah, it's you're riding around in a car and it's warm, 
you know, inside and, you know, you know that your paycheck's coming and you know that you're going to get your benefits. It's all from the government, you know, and that's a thing I think that, that, that draws people in. I think, uh, uh, there is that element to it. Um, and then, you know, part of it, I suppose, is sort of justifying it in a way. And, um, you know, so you do have to, you know, justify your existence, you know, and you do have to, I think they do have to, in order to justify, you know, their existence with the money that they get from the taxpayer and, and, and all that, they do have to sort of hyperbolize the, the danger that they're facing um, and, and what they're up against, you know, just to, just to feel better about it, you know? Um, and everybody there around is drinking the same Kool-Aid. And, you know, I'm not gonna say that there's not, a, you know, a need for law enforcement. I mean, I wish that there were a more perfect system, but I mean, you know, people do get murdered. Murders do need to be discouraged, uh, you know, stuff like that that's very serious, I suppose that, you know, uh, if you didn't have law enforcement, what what would you do uh, about that sort of thing, right? Uh, you know, at the same time, though, uh, you know, like like the war stuff, you know, it's business, it's it's money, it's paychecks, it's contracts, it's uh, you know, there's people making the uniforms, there's people, you know, sending the Kool Aid packets to the jails. So everybody's getting paid, you know, um, and so like, uh, what is it? It's a, it's a that capitalist sort of thing, you know. It's got to be growing, you know. Business has got to grow, right? Everybody's got a cousin and a brother-in-law that needs a job too, so they gotta, you know, gotta sort of take it to a level that it maybe shouldn't shouldn't go to. And how much of that is greed, and how much of that is you know delusion and you know, sort of half of that, how much of that is just their own sort of existential crisis, you know, maybe like, um, I mean, I would say, yeah, there was definitely a, a othering of, of uh, people from Islamic cultures, just in general across the board, that was widespread, rampant, uh, shameful and embarrassing that was going on at the time, right? Of, uh, you know, at the time that I was in the military, I uh, I didn't really go in for that sort of thing. But then again, you know, just sort of being there, I guess I voted with my feet to get there. And I was, uh, you know, enabling it in the way that I, that I did and furthering it in the way that I did. Um, but, you know, so there were things that were just beyond, beyond. And there were things that were, you know, blatant fucking nonsense that were you know, done wide open. I mean, you would think that people would be fucking embarrassed to to act uh, a way or to say say a thing. And it, you know, it was it wasn't just that, like you know, that sort of talk, that sort of attitude was was not discouraged. It was you know, it was encouraged, and um, you know, not by everyone, but by enough people that you know, a lot more people jumped on the bandwagon 
and went in for that sort of sort of thing. And I think that um, you know also there's you know questions of loyalty and you know who's all right and who's not all right and who's going to have your back and who's not going to have your back. So you know where that translates to like law enforcement, a similar situation. Well, you know it's sort of you know, there is a danger that they that they do face, um, you know, probably not really on the level with the danger that they create. If you just look at the, the raw numbers of the amount of people killed by law enforcement versus, you know, the people or the, the law enforcement people that lose their lives doing their job. Um, or the statistics on how many, like you say, I, I, I 100% agree with you. Like if you put it to anybody, like, do we need law enforcement? And most people yeah. will say, and I will agree. Yeah, we, we need murders to be solved and deterred through, you know, like yeah. the fact that there would be, you know, consequences of some sort and crimes to be investigated. But if you just look at, yeah, what the police actually accomplish, like they're just not solving those crimes to the degree which they should with the amount of funding and, and oh, yeah. uh, it's the amount of uh, leeway they get with our civil rights leading up to yeah incarceration and death uh, yeah. at their at their hands and it's 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 um, I would say they even create crime you know oh and that's a that's a big part of it here in in Ohio that's shocking to learn about and and people um, I've spoken with, that are that are sources on stories and 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 others i've relayed this to don't disagree that to a certain level in certain counties it's 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 it has it boiled down to organized crime historically and and, and probably contemporary contemporaneously and it's quite a, a mountain to to want to climb but um not a lot of people are looking at that and and certainly as a journalist coming into this looking at how uh how how you know when i when i'm following in the wake of stories that other other outlets have covered and seeing similarities into how the national press was very deferential to what would come out of the pentagon or the secretary of defense and yeah. seeing that trickle down to the same sort of deference given to a county police chief or a prosecutor yeah. they're very afraid of losing their access oh um, yeah. and yeah that's that's, yeah, that's a big thing you know and it's like you know people complain about you know mainstream media and how they report the news right and how well you know i mean now it's so divided it's just like you know what the republicans will go on fox news and the democrats will go on cnn or msnbc and it's you know but you look at that polarization and what does it tell you you know it tells you that you know say the reporter at CNN, you know, in the, you know, in the much hated mainstream media, right? You know, say that person working for CNN, they would like to report, you know, in earnest and, and expose corruption and, you know, call it like they see it. And, you know, they can't because, they've got bosses over over the top of them or they even understand for their own sort of survival, their own career survival, that, you know, if they make waves, either they lose their job or their network loses its access. Um, and, you know, this was a, you know, uh, there was a, 
there was a lot of talk about that kind of looking back on the 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 global war on terror you know just how the press would just sort of you know give all the all the faith in the world to the pentagon and their and their press releases and that was just what happened and they never questioned it and the same thing is kind of like what you're saying right now you know it's just well then you know the local news doesn't want to lose their access to the the county prosecutor's office so they're gonna you know they're just gonna play ball because you know if the county prosecutor won't have a press conference, then they don't have a show anymore. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's uh, a lot of, a lot of stuff is just, you know, really is just boiling down to at the end of the day, people's paychecks and what kind of evil they're willing to go along with to, to have them. Um, and this, you know, sort of goes in with the, with the police thing as well. You know, they, you know, it's either you're for us or you're against us. It's an us versus them mentality. And when they, you know, kind of see or feel the negativity coming from, you know, the population that's directed, you know, towards law enforcement, and then it just sort of like enforces it more, you know, and it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a vicious cycle wherein, you know, well, the people are pissed at the police because the police are doing too much. So then the police, you know, start viewing every citizen as a criminal until proven otherwise. And, you know, they're trying to, you know, I don't know, they're trying to, you know, kind of come together and stay strong together. And it's sort of one of the things, like every action, there's a reaction, right? So, you know, the, you know, they're gonna in turn, come down harder on the people that they're policing sort of as a way to, you know, vent their frustration as well as, you know, to point to all the incidents that they're involved with and say, look, you know, we had to, we had to arrest this guy. We had to arrest this lady. We had to shoot this guy. You know, these people were fucked up and, you know, you guys have no idea what we're dealing with, you know? So, and, and, even beyond just sort of the organized crime, the corruption, you know, that in itself creates crime, I guess, if, 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 if it's now against the law, you know, to, to uh, you know, I don't know, uh, give a police officer a bad feeling about something. I guess that's a crime now, you know? So, <laughs> you know, to be suspicious is a crime, regardless of whether or not you're doing something. And then, you know, you know, they may be worried about getting in trouble. So shit, you know, fuck, if we don't find anything, we're going to fucking, we're going to put something there so we find it. So we don't, you know, get, get raked over the coals, you know, and uh, yeah, who knows, but nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to lose their benefits. Everybody picks a side and, you know, you're for that side or you're against that side. And if you're not for it, you know, they're going to find you out and you're not going to be around very long. There's all sorts of talk about, whistleblowers and police departments they get frozen out overnight their persona non grata they cease to exist they lose their job and they lose all their friends and who wants to not have any friends regardless of who your friends are so take us um take me out of uh iraq like you get how how do you come out and then 
you say, you know, you're getting back into society and, and how um, does that escalate into the, to the point where you, you know, you, you decide to start robbing banks um, and going from, you know, being the epitome of, well, you know, look at, here's this nice young man went to Iraq at 19 and you have medals and accomplishments and then move on to this trajectory um, that ends up landing you um, landing you in prison. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to unpack. I'm do my best. Um, you know, it's certainly like part of it was just kind of thinking uh, myself, you know, well, you know, what's legal and what's illegal and what's allowed and what's not allowed, you know, it, it's become so relative, right? It's just like, you know, nothing's illegal as long as you're big enough to do it. You know, nothing's illegal as long as you can get away with it. So and this was the this was the mentality that sort of you came out of being in Iraq with, you feel like? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, uh, I mean, I definitely thought that it was, you know, that it was, you know, insanity, what it, what had happened and what was ongoing. Um, I didn't really yeah, know how to feel about it, though, because at the same time, it's like, you know, shit, I'm a, I was a part of it. So, like, you know, obviously there's a lot of denial that goes into that. But, you know, I was never one of these guys out asking about the veterans discount at Denny's, you know, three years after my ETS date. You know, I wasn't wearing it on my sleeve like that. Um, but, yeah, as it was I thinking that at the time sure I was thinking you know it's like well okay this is this is a this is illegal right and you know that's that's all well and good but I mean what who's gonna try me you know it's like being tried by the U.S. government that would be like you know being tried by Charles Manson you know so the kind of the moral authority I guess of you know, whatever society had sort of dissolved for me. Um, well, I mean, there's certainly a slow erosion that would come from drug abuse, which I think for me is even I I was inoculated against addiction on from a watching my dad and, and like that kept me away from drinking and not wanting to, you know, be like him. But then also I think I saw train spotting at the right age yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then I had friends who spiraled in, into heroin that I, I tried to help and it would just drag me down in different ways. But um, I certainly um, can appreciate, you know, uh, the need, like you said, to take the edge off um, and, 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 and where, um, you know, opioids was n just never an option for me. Uh, you already had that door opened and you had a lot more edge to take off it seemed like and but i just know that when i first finally got around to okay i'll try pot that little thing really was something that put the the a, a fracture in my brain about oh what's on the other side of this illegal wall it's not all wrong and that yeah. wall has from that fracture i think of you know trying pot and being like this is pretty good 
I'm not dangerous. This is fine. And, and whatever. And granted, I never went any further with drugs, but I know to that extent um, and knowing some people who have managed all sorts of, you know, dabble in this and that and, and um, the degree to which it should be criminalized and illegal, it only serves to, um, you know, and when people try drugs, I think ultimately like break, break their, break the facade down of, uh, well, is how, how righteous is our legal system. And certainly when you get into the gears of it. Yeah, it definitely does more harm than good. I would imagine as far as the war on drugs. I mean, I think that's a no brainer, you know, I mean, if they would have just legalized the production of drugs, I mean, think about how many, you know, think about what it would do to organize crime, you know, especially, you know, south of the border. I mean, you know, how many people are being murdered, you know, just to control, you know, the roads going into the United States. Um, and, you know, if, if it weren't something that had to be done outside of what was legal, you know, uh, then, then it would be, uh, it would be a non-issue. I mean, it just wouldn't, you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't have the problem of, you know, tens of thousands of, of people being murdered in Mexico every year, you know, over, over the narcotics trafficking business, um, you know, vying for control of that. Um, and, uh, Oh, we lost your video. Yeah, it looks like uh, it looks like I'm gonna have to plug in real quick. I'll be right back. No problem. No, you were you were saying before uh, had a battery flub or, or warning that the um, you know what what could be gained uh, in terms of like or not having drugs be uh, criminalized the way they are. Certainly, in in reading of the you know the struggle you paint of a junkie. Uh, when dealing with heroin, uh, beyond the fact that, you know, um, however it gets overpriced and the product gets stepped on and you have to risk what you're putting in your body. And back then you weren't um, a, a, um, a heroin addict navigating the fentanyl issue, yeah. I believe. That's a new. Yeah, it made it a lot more affordable, I guess, but a lot more deadly as well. You know, the, the fentanyl thing, I... I missed fentanyl, I guess, fortunate for me, um, probably would be dead otherwise. But uh, yeah, uh, that's another, I mean, that's another issue. I mean, right, it's like however many thousands of people every year are dying, uh, you know, from these fentanyl overdoses, you know, if they could go to Walgreens and, you know, buy some oxycodone over the counter, it's a non-issue all of a sudden, you know, suddenly, you know, all these people are alive uh, and not incarcerated and not on supervision. And, you know, they, you know, they have freedom to do whatever, you know, they need to do with the rest of their life. I mean, um, criminalizing drugs, is, it's, it's insanity, but it's, it's not meant to make sense. Um, it's meant to make money. It's meant to uh, fill the prisons up, you know, and certainly, you know, being a junkie, which is, you know, the worst kind of drug user there is. I think uh, the, the squares voted and they agree that the junkie is, he's the, you know, the, the heroin user, he's the worst.
the worst one, that guy, right? But well, um, you don't get there with that. You don't get to that point without having some sort of character flaw. I think if there's one thing that, you know, maybe a positive that came out of um, ox, the Oxycontin epidemic and what, what, it's, what it's deep reverberations it's had in our country is that it opened some people's eyes be like no when a certain thing gets in gets in your around your brain chemistry and and you, you know people do that for all sorts of reasons and it doesn't make them a terrible person but even if they are you need to be able to that person needs to find help and not suddenly be like oh i'm this degenerate criminal already by my behavior yeah and have shame attached it just it, like you know the same way if you're if you get to a point where you can't handle alcohol you know yeah. you don't have that extra step in admitting it to people of saying like also i'm a criminal i've been doing you know meeting up with shady people to get yeah, my take alcohol me to jail. take me to jail right now please yeah right this is uh, it's an option for the alcohol people more so uh you know to look for treatment you know as opposed to you know, heroin addict, you know, it's like, now it's a criminal issue, right? And why, what's the difference? I mean, you know, I think that there are people who can function using opioids, you know, I'm not saying that I recommend using opioids. I would say, honestly, if there was something that I could recommend to somebody, it would be sobriety, because I think that when someone is 100% uh, sober, I mean, in, in, including, I'm sorry, before I was sitting on my legs, so I didn't look so short. Uh, so back to what I was saying, right? Um, you know, when when you have like abstinence from, from drugs and alcohol, right? Um, I think that, you know, a person is at their best then as far as, you know, realizing their potential, what they can do um, that's, you know, productive and creative, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, I don't think that, drugs or alcohol ever help anybody uh be creative but the problem is is that you know uh or not the problem is but i think what a lot of people who are on the other side of this issue than say i am is that uh, you know, a lot of people uh get into drugs right you know uh and i'm not talking about like you know take well I won't rule anything out because I don't know if anybody's situation could be, you know, unique to me and that's something that I don't know about it. But a lot of people are self-medicating, you know, especially you look at the pain, the painkiller thing and the, and, the, and the fentanyl crisis and all the overdose deaths, you know. A lot of these people uh, are, in, are in physical pain, right? And, uh, you know, they used to go to pain clinics and then there was the outrage about the pain clinic. So we've got to close all the pain clinics down. We have to put all the pain clinic doctors in jail. You know, we have to cut these people off from, 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 from these uh, Oxycontin pills. And it's like, well, you know, they don't have Oxycontin anymore. Do you think they're just going to be like, well, well, you know, Oxycontin's illegal. So I guess I'm just going to be in fucking pain now. No, they're going to look for something else to take the place of, you know, whatever was, uh, you know, prohibited. And, uh, you know, just the same as when you had uh, prohibition and, and people, you know, started making fucking, making their own alcohol, right? I mean, people are gonna find a way to get what they need. And 
you know, they're going to do whatever they need to do up to risk their lives, you know, to get what they think that they need, what they believe that they need. And so, you know, people who, uh, I mean, I've talked to addicts other than myself who say, you know, like, for instance, with me, I mean, you know, opioids, it wasn't, you know, whatever, so you say, nobody says they want to be a junkie when they grow up. It's not that, it's just like, you know, I felt fucking terrible. You know, it's just like the way I felt mentally was uh, it was awful. And, um, it was, you know, it was, and I was also very confused, you know, you, didn't, you know, it's like you're mad, but you don't know why you're, you're depressed, but you don't know why you can't sleep, but you don't know why you can't be normal, but you don't know why you can't just relax, but you don't know why. Right. And then you just find this magic bullet that sets everything right. And, you know, maybe it's kind of one of those things where, you know, in your own head, you're fine, but in, but you know, in other people's eyes, you're nodding out, you look fucked up or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. I don't think anybody's really getting that tore up from what I was doing to start with was, you know, like the little 20 milligrams of oxy or whatever. But, um, you know, uh, it was something where I took that and I was like, well, this is an answer to a problem that I have. And, you know, I would like to feel this way for the rest of my life because it's better than I feel otherwise, you know? And, you know, you, one thing leads to another, say it's like, well, you know, this oxy is expensive. So, you know, maybe it'd be cheaper if I was snorting heroin and then you snort the heroin and you're like, well, this heroin's sort of expensive, you know, maybe it'd be cheaper if I were banging it, you know? So you're shooting the heroin, you're injecting it now. And then, you know, in your, in your pursuit of a more cost-effective way of maintaining, you know, you've gone and gotten uh, a pretty absurd little fucking habit. And then, you know, you have these periods where, you know, you're so stressed when you don't have money. And so when you get money, there's like this huge relief. And in that relief, maybe you celebrate and, uh, you know, you're a little bit over generous with, with what you allow yourself to intake. And then, you know, the next thing you have a bigger, a bigger habit. There's all sorts of traps and all sorts of pitfalls, and it's really all unnecessary because, you know, like I said, you know, if I could have just gone to Walgreens and fucking, you know, I don't know, bought a bottle of Dilaudid, you know, uh, it would have saved me a lot of fucking time and energy, it would have saved the taxpayers a lot of money, you know, that they spent on incarcerating me and all this. But then again, you know, a lot of, a lot of COs maybe would not have had jobs, and you know, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of fucking uh, a lot of taxes wouldn't have been paid, and or all sorts of other repercussions. I don't know. I let myself take a minute to imagine if, like you're saying, well, what if there's a world where I could just go to Walgreens and I can get uh, this opioid at a regulated? I know what it is. It's at it's not getting marked up because it's going through a whole middleman racket on, on you know, a crime syndicate level, which is how yeah. whoever you get it from makes their money. Um, or if they, they, have don't their have own life they have their own prescription and then they're yeah. selling it off to you or whatever. But the other yeah. thing is, too, it's like if you're just allowed to get it and then, you know, maybe you get it after a certain point, though, you know, it's like, 
well, why don't we get to maybe you need some therapy to figure out like or something, you know, to figure out what it is like, you know, you're, you're trying to get the world to just be calm and normal for you in your brain. But like I said, there's just no access to that when it's all criminalized. And you certainly puts you into a desperate situation with, like you said, uh, more and more as it, as it escalates um, unwatched and, and, you, and it's shameful and you keep it a secret, like addictions yeah. and mental health issue. Um, so how does it spiral? Well, yeah, well, it's a health issue, period. Yeah. yeah. And, and how does it move, uh, move into um, the point where a bank robbery uh, seems like, yeah, why not? take this step in order in furtherance of 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 your addiction well you know i'm already a criminal right i'm already i'm already scum you know so what's what's a little bit more scum i'm some scum you know it doesn't really make a difference to to scum if it's got a little more scum on it does it no um i mean obviously i regret it obviously there's all sorts of things i'm not talking about like my own personal accountability for my own actions which you know, I mean, what I did was definitely wrong. And I don't say that it wasn't wrong. And, you know, I wouldn't do it again, you know, for love and money. And I feel, I feel bad about it. Uh, you know, within reason, you know, I didn't, didn't hurt anybody. Uh, at least, you know, not physically didn't mean to, you know, didn't, didn't use strong language, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just, I mean, what can you say, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, how bad do I feel about it? I wish it hadn't happened. My days of like really feeling bad about it are kind of over because that was the, the whole idea of, you know, going to prison for a long time, right? Uh, you know, you're, you know, it's not supposed to be like you go to prison for a really long time and then you get out and you still feel bad about it. I mean what I had heard was it's about, you know, repaying your debt to society or whatever, which I've, you know, which I'd say, you know, I've done, you know, I gave up essentially 10 years of my life. Um, and it's still an ongoing thing for me, you know, I can't go where I want to go, I can't do whatever I would like to do. Um, I'm not free to move around however I'd like. And it's, uh, what is it? I mean, it's, you know, it's 11 years after the fact at this point. It's, uh, it's been a long time, but uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I don't feel as bad about it as I should, but I don't think it was a good thing. And, uh, you know, regardless of, you know, whatever movies were made or, you know, whatever books were, you know, published. I mean, I'm not going to say that you know, I fucking hate my life right now. I have a lot to be grateful for, but you know, if I could take back, uh, take it back and, you know, not have robbed these banks, you know, or whatever I would, have, I would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of other things I would take back too, you know, so. You know, like working for those people, the same people that locked me up, essentially, you know, being in the military, I would take that back as well if I could, but we're not talking about things that are realistic at that point. So 
when you uh in your prison uh time in prison that's actually how i first became uh aware of your story was uh through the subject i was in my previous and ongoing investigation which was tony viola um you want to talk about how you first came to meet tony and um you know to what degree if anyone's completely unfamiliar with his story if we rehash it here just say go back a couple episodes in this podcast or i'll link to it in the description but i'm curious to know um what that how that relationship started out and and what you what you learned about how you learned about tony's story oh tony was my celly uh uh fci ashland so i'd actually cross paths with them, I guess, a couple times. Uh, you know, when he was, after his conviction, you know, they sent him to the CCA in Youngstown and I was there at the time. And then he immediately went to uh, County, um, you know, where he did a state trial from where he represented himself in the state court. I think, what was it, 41 counts that he got acquitted on, I believe. I don't know. It's over 40, right? Maybe anyway so you know and then he he had come through again after uh after his state or his county court or whatever his state court um acquittal uh when he still had to serve his federal sentence for his conviction uh on the same charges in the trial where uh he had not represented him his, himself in court had uh uh kind of he trusted that to a lawyer. Uh, I think he wishes that he hadn't at this point. Um, sort of threw in with uh, his alleged co-defendants. But, um, you know, you don't run into uh, a ton of people who are completely innocent, you know. I mean, even by, like, terms of statutes and whatnot, you know. I mean, everybody, you know, everybody's done something. But I mean, you know, Tony was so bizarre. And the fact that it's like, this is a guy who's literally like, you know, never commit, committed any sort of crime in his life. You know, you want to talk about how legitimate the laws are, you know, that's another discussion. I mean, you know, whether whether it was a, a, a sensible law, a legitimate law or illegitimate, insane law, you know, uh, Tony abided by them all. You know, uh, he did not get out of pocket ever. You know, that's not to say that, you know, everybody else deserved to be in prison. I'm not saying that by any, any, any stretch of the imagination here. But, uh, you know, Tony, like, literally, you know, from what I could tell, uh, had not done what he was accused of doing. And it seems sort of like... Uh, I don't know, a situation where they were willing to send Tony to prison for, you know, 13 years, 13 and a half years, I think was the sentence that he got, rather than uh, admit that they had made a mistake, you know, which, which is pretty harsh when you think about it. But, you know, I guess they probably figured, hey, we've destroyed this guy's business, you know, we say that we uh, made a mistake, he'd probably be entitled to a pretty large settlement. So rather than deal with all that, uh, deal with all that, you know, why don't we just, you know, bury him in a prison somewhere for 
you know, 11 years or something. Well, we'll just, you know, forget it all happened. Uh, but Tony wasn't, Tony, Tony Viola, Anthony Viola, he wasn't going down like that, I guess. So, you know, he was fighting them tooth and nail and has been fighting them uh, for as long as I've known him. You know, I met him in, uh, well, I was his celly, I guess, what, going back to 2012. That was, uh, that was when he and I were bumped together. And, you know, he's been fighting them every day since then, uh, trying to get his federal conviction thrown out. Did he come in, uh, was, was Tony sort of um, very out, 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 outward about like, I'm, I'm innocent in here, or did he keep things close to his vest to sort of feel out like, oh, who are you? Or, or was there- uh, you know, No, Tony he, was screaming from the rooftops that he was innocent, you know? I mean, I think if you were really innocent, I guess uh, going into prison, I mean, just completely like, by the letter of the law, innocent. I think anybody would, would be that way. You know, I think, it, you know, at least I, you know, however long I was in jail, you know, at least I'd done what they said I did. You know, imagine it just be a nightmare for it to be any other way. You know, I mean, he couldn't even console himself with however much time he had gotten away with it for whatever, you know, I mean, this is guy, he had built a business up on his own, you know, the hard way and and you know had a good thing going for himself and this guy they took everything from him and then you know if that went bad enough they took his freedom as well and and uh and locked him up and he was uh he was very very angry about it uh i believe he's still angry about it to this day i mean who wouldn't be but, uh, you know, he wasn't morose uh, at all. You know, he had a very positive attitude. Uh, he didn't think that it was undoable to get his conviction overturned. And he believed that the court would do the right thing. Um, uh, many years ago, uh, he hasn't really had a hearing uh, since then, he hasn't really got his day in court, uh, you know, to retry his case yet. Um, so I'm, I imagine that his faith in the system is a little bit shaken, probably gets worse every day that uh, it goes on for. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't all woe as me about it. Uh, you know, I guess the best way to describe it, you know, he, he, was, he was fairly pissed off. I mean, you know, he was, uh, you know, he wouldn't really like yell, act like a psycho or something about it, but, you know, he would get pretty intense. You know, he's, well, he was, he's certainly a man filled with righteous indignation, I, I would say. Yeah, and, righteous and indignation. Deservedly <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, if I if I have any hope for, you know, that's the privilege of this job of like doing journalism. And certainly, you know, when I look, when I went through and kind of took in your arc through the prism of media, um, like previous interviews and, and see that um, it was this Buzzfeed profile that was done and, you know, got the attention of the right person who, you know, it seemed like that 
set you off onto, you know, have you thought about what your path would be if you just had been an anonymous person who came out of jail and didn't have um, what, and I think one of my favorite parts of your book is actually the acknowledgement where you kind of talk about how you were, this became a book and, and, and having it coaxed out of you and, and dealing with the process of finding your voice. Um, so if, if you want to talk about that yeah. at all, because I definitely I, I, had a lot of help, you know, and yeah, I mean, I would not have had whatever good luck that I've had. I mean, my good luck has been, you know, people that helped me. You know, I mean, they didn't do it for free, you know, I mean, everybody got paid, I guess, but at the same time, you know, it's made all the difference in the world to me uh, in some ways, you know, uh, I do think, think back about, you know, what, what I'd be doing had that not all happened, you know, I was, I was reading books about gardening and, and uh, plant propagation and soil amendment and stuff you know I was gonna be a be a gardener or something when I got out I was gonna be a landscaper you know I was trying to get ready for that you know and then the whole book thing you know kind of started or sort of got started one way or another and I ended up writing a book and, and you know doing well and you know I have a lot to be grateful for and that you know, that all that had, had happened, um, you know, not to say that, that, you know, that I'd be completely miserable had I, you know, gotten out and been a gardener. Um, uh, at the same time, I mean, it's been fortunate. For instance, you know, if I hadn't been able to pay off all my restitution money, you know, the money that I owe from having stolen it, uh, you know, while I was in prison, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to uh, get out on a compassionate release, probably, you know, um, but I've been able to show that I had paid that restitution sort of before, you know, a situation had come up in which my mother was terminally ill, you know, so when I had about three months left to go until I was supposed to go to the halfway house, I was able to get out to the halfway house earlier and with a, a court order permitting me to travel within reason to see my mother who was dying at the time. And, you know, that would not have been possible uh, were it not for, you know, having written that book and gotten the money, which I didn't pay the restitution off with. And, you know, think about Tony, I believe Tony's father, I think passed away uh, while he was in prison, you know, and, uh, I mean, uh, the difference, I don't know the difference because I was able to see, you know, my, my mother before she died, but, you know, to be able to just be there, uh, you know, when something like that happens versus to not be there. I mean, that in and of itself is, uh, you know, that might make the, all the difference in the world to somebody, you know, made, a, made all the difference in the world to me, I can't imagine. Had it, if I hadn't been able to to get out for that, and you know, so you know, Tony, I mean, he hasn't he hasn't had the luck that I've had in that respect. I mean, uh, for no shortage of trying, you know, people uh, people have tried to draw attention uh, to Tony's situation. I know that you've done 
quite a bit yourself and thank you for that uh you couldn't be helping a better guy um but uh you know i think part of it is that the story is so complicated you know it's hard to really put it into a nutshell that people can can understand you know i mean it's pretty simple to say it's like you know they accused him of owning a company that he didn't own that nothing with uh, you know it's easy to put into a nutshell you know it's like well you know the guy who shows the property you know he's not the guy who's given the mortgage so it's kind of hard to see how like you know the realtor is responsible for the subprime mortgage crisis or whatever you know I mean these things are, are small but they're not you know the sort of thing that really you know, get people interested in the story, you know, there's no, there's, there's not, there's none of this drama, you know, there's no, you know, body in a trunk necessarily that's going to get people to click on it, right? Um, so, you know, despite the fact that the consequences have been very serious, I mean, he got a lot of jail time, he would have just got off with probation had he admitted his guilt, right? I mean, that's the thing that really stands out to me is that, you know, had he just said that he was guilty, right? The the feds would have given him, su you know, supervision, but because he refused to say that he was guilty, they gave him, I believe it was 13 years is what he was sentenced to. And, you know, you have to ask, I mean, how is justice served by that? You know, this is a guy that you were going to let go. So, I mean, you're not protecting the public from anybody. He's lost his real estate license, you know, so you can sleep safe at night knowing that Tony Viola is not showing anybody a, a duplex and, you know, uh, on Clifton today. <laughs> like, we can rest assured that that wouldn't be happening. So, you know, why sentence him all this time just because he refused to, to admit to something that you know, he didn't do, or at least he believes that he didn't do. Um, and I believe, you know, I believe Tony. I mean, I know Tony. I mean, Tony's a Tony's a stand-up guy. He's not. He's not a selfish guy. You know, when I was doing the things that I did to land in prison, uh, you know, I was uh, I was being extraordinarily selfish. You know, uh, and I don't think. I don't think Tony's got it in him for whatever reason to be as selfish as uh, as I was being. Probably not being addicted to heroin was something that helped. Uh, but you know, not to knock myself down too much, I suppose. But uh, you know, I mean, this is a guy in in prison. You know, he's fighting his own case, and anybody else who's got any sort of issue that they would like to raise with the court, you know, if they went to Tony with that issue, Tony was on it, you know, and took it very seriously and would do it for nothing, would, you know, write a brief for somebody, would help somebody submit, you know, a motion to the court, um, you know, on his own time and asking nothing in return. Uh, you know, that's just the type of guy that he is. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's why it made such an impression on me, you know, even though I only knew him a few years. 
uh, you know, he was Sally's two years when he got out, but uh, went on to another prison rather, didn't get out when he left Ashland. And um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, it didn't add up, you know, and then you look kind of at the facts of the case, you know, which he really wanted everybody, you know, with any questions about it. I mean, he would show everything, right? Um, and then you look at it and you look at just the circumstances around his conviction and, you know, the only knowing him, you know, knowing what had happened, knowing who he was dealing with, you know, as far as the law enforcement side of it, the task force, everything, knowing how those things go. I mean, the only thing that you walk away from that is, you know, damn, this is too bad. This is an innocent man who's, uh, you know, got a lot of time to do unless if, uh, unless the court somehow does the right thing, you know, yeah. And so you, um, you've moved now into writing your second book, I understand. Um, yeah. And is that one's going to focus on, on prison. Is it also going to be drawing on your own experiences? And do you go, well, I'll, I'll ask you just like, yeah, if you want to just kind of lay out what the book is for, but yeah, I have a couple of questions about where you're going with the second one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just not as personal, you know, it's, uh, it's a bit more detached, you know, and, um, you know, so there's not like a, a first person voice in it that's gonna, you know, be the protagonist of, of it, right? So um, I suppose sort of what I'm, what I'd really like to do, I guess, with the book is, you know, make something that's uh, entertaining and at the same time not hyperbolic and kind of playing on a lot of negative stereotypes that are that don't do justice to the type of people who are incarcerated don't do I mean it's you know I think there's this popular perception of, of prison as a place where you know everybody just hangs out all day making license plates and raping one another, right? And this is not the case, you know? Uh, you know, uh, the people that I, were, that I was locked up with, you know, I mean, most of them were just, just ordinary people, you know? Ordinary people who've had, uh, had bad luck or, you know, maybe, they, maybe they're sick, they got a mental illness something like that, um, or an addiction, you know, um, you know, this idea that, you know, all the prisoners are savages, you know, all these hard guys, right? I mean, I mean, it's like, you look at me, it's like, you know, I was, federal prison for a decade, right? For robbing banks, you know, I'm, I'm just a nerd, you know what I mean? Just a nerd at the end of the day. I ain't a tough guy, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not like a bad man or anything. I'm, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on myself in a fight. <laughs> so, 
saying my storage is full. I'm not storing this, so I don't know why. But you know, so well, yeah, I mean, just kind of finishing up what I was saying is just that you know, one of the things that I wanted to do with Cherry was I wanted to get away from all this. You know, I'm not a hero, but actually I'm a hero. But don't just I'm gonna say I'm not a hero. You know, all this stuff where, you know, they make all the all the war stuff real exciting and real lethal weapon four and all this. You know, um, I wanted to have like a more honest rendition of what what all that is like. You know, and um, you know, not sort of aggrandize it with all the all the action and all the saving private Ryan of it, you know, because, you know, it wasn't Omaha beach, it was Iraq and that's two different things. And even Omaha beach isn't Omaha beach. Like it was in saving private Ryan. I mean, you know, somebody's getting smoked every two seconds in that thing, you know, and that way they were there all day, but somehow, you know, we're supposed to believe that that's what really happened there. Right. But it's not, I mean, it's that ultra violent stuff that's entertainment that's not what it's really like you know people aren't that reckless with their lives like that you know there'd be a mutiny right so um you know uh as far as uh you know as far as the prison thing goes you know one of the things that i'm sort of aiming to do is uh you know I said with Cherry, I wanted to write like the most anticlimactic Iraq war book that that existed, right? And, you know, it's, I kind of want to do the same thing for for federal prison, you know, you know, rather than, you know, I'd probably sell a lot more books if I went around being like, yeah, I was locked up with a bunch of psychos, man. It was, it was, it was crazy. We stabbed each other every day, people dropping dead in the oatmeal. You know, but uh, you know that's that's not gonna do any good, and uh, I'm not trying to not trying to go out like that. So uh, that's kind of what I'm getting at with the book, I suppose, right now. And uh, is uh, Tony Tony Viola gonna make a cameo as any kind of character? Is like the wrongfully accused guy that. <laughs> You know, that's a thought. I should have thought about that. Uh, I don't know. I got so much respect for Tony. Uh, well, uh, Tony, Tony, I've been telling people like Tony can he this this and even just the prosecutor, his story or the prosecutor. There's yeah. a, a whole book and a Netflix series somewhere in this. And that's what I've well, been I'm trying to saying, like lay know? out the table for everybody. Like, come this is a much bigger story than I can do by myself. Yeah, right. And but yeah, the other thing is Tony Tony Viola is not a man you want to piss off either. So I don't I don't know if I want to want to take a crack at a Tony Viola character. I might uh, might open a whole can of worms. For sure. me, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's well, determined. Well, Nico, uh, I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, I very much look forward to reading your next book. Uh, highly recommend everyone read, uh, get yourself a copy of Cherry. Uh, I can't philosophically uh, tell anyone to get Apple Plus TV uh, because I just 
get mad yeah. that that thing exists whenever my Macs <laughs> crash or just get worse. And I think about the fact that their their machines keep getting worse, but now they're making movies and nonsense. And I'm, I'm glad they oh, made yeah, your movie, no. <laughs> but yeah. I want them to I want people to buy your book more than get Apple Plus. <laughs> Oh yeah, def yeah, definitely. Uh, if, you, if it's a choice between the film and the uh, and the book, get the book. I don't make any money off of anybody watching the film, so you know, if you want to help, if you want to help me out, buy the book. Don't don't uh, don't don't watch the film. If you had to choose, yes. 